Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas. This is Veterinary Vitals, a podcast that focuses on current news in the Texas veterinary profession. I'm your host, Audrea Wood. Today on Veterinary Vitals, I speak with Dr. Will McCauley. As the Director of Corporate Relations for Texas A&M School of Veterinary Medicine, TAMU Health, and the School of Engineering Medicine, he serves as a dedicated conduit for companies seeking to partner with Texas A&M University. These partnerships empower Texas A&M's incredible students, dedicated faculty, and innovative programs to improve the health of people, animals, and the environment. Today, Dr. McCauley shares on veterinary career opportunities in the regulatory sector. Tyler, Texas, so about 100 miles east of Dallas. I uh, went to Texas A&M for uh, all three of my degrees. Went there for undergrad and business school and vet school. Finally graduated back in 2012. Um, after that, I went and did a, a small animal rotating internship out in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then after that, I went and practiced small animal and exotic medicine in Dallas for about five years. Um, enjoyed practice to a degree, but uh, wanted to try something else, and so I, uh, about five years ago, well back in 2017, I moved to Washington, D.C. and started working for a trade association called the Animal Health Institute, and that's where I've been for the past five years up until uh, this August when I relocated back to Texas with my wife and our son, uh, and I work for the Texas A&M Foundation, uh, part of Texas A&M University, and I will say, um, Anything I say today is my own opinions and thoughts. Uh, it doesn't reflect any way on my employers. So what made you want to change up your career? Practice can be very rewarding, but it can also be very trying. Um, for me, the medicine and the surgery part of it was never the hard part. That was the part that you're trained for. It was really the kind of day-to-day constant, uh, I don't want to call it a battle, but sometimes it was a battle with pet owners and just with scheduling, <clears throat> with the limitations of what you're able to provide in terms of care and, and service. And um, I think some people have a, uh, a mental constitution where they can you know, put that behind them when they go home at the end of the day and then go back to work the next day. I couldn't. You know, I took all that home and it really stressed me out and uh, kind of led me to some bad places. And I uh, decided, you know, for my own mental health and my own uh, professional advancement, it's best that I step away from the clinic and try to use some of my other skill sets, still in the animal health realm, uh, to still improve animal health, human health, uh, and, and have it affect in a different way. Yeah, I'm glad you were aware of your mental health in that. I know it can be really stressful, but that doesn't mean it's the end of the road for a veterinarian if they find themselves in a position that doesn't jive with their well-being. So what are some other career opportunities in the regulatory sector? Yeah, so the thing I kind of wanted to harp on most today was this world called the regulatory arena or world or sphere, whatever you want to call it, because I think 
I may have heard the regulatory route mentioned once or twice in vet school, and I never really had an idea about what it was. So in a sense, um, the products that veterinarians use every day, animal health products, so your, <clears throat> your drugs, your vaccines, your topical flea and tick medications, all those have to go through some sort of approval process. Um, so they have to be um, evaluated for things like their potency, make sure they're at the right concentration, their safety, um, their purity, and their efficacy. Make sure that they work, that they're safe, that they are what they say they are. And on the human side, it's all fairly simplified. The FDA kind of does all that for the humans. Uh, on the animal side, it's different. Uh, there are actually three different regulatory agencies that have purview over the products that veterinarians use. Um, how that came about is a long story we don't need to get into, but as a kind of typical breakdown, your pharmaceuticals, so any drug compound or uh, any drug substance you use is regulated by the FDA, specifically the Center for Veterinary Medicine. Then any biologic, which is your vaccines, your antitoxins, your um, immunomodulators, monoclonal antibodies, stuff that works via the immune system. That's actually regulated by the USDA. And then any topical flea or tick product um, is actually classified as a pesticide, and so it's regulated by the EPA. And so the, um, the opportunities are endless in terms of where veterinarians may want to get involved in the regulatory sphere, but uh, that's partly a function of the fact that there's three federal agencies kind of overseeing the products we use. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the general overview of the regulatory. There's veterinarians working on both sides of this process and also kind of in the middle, I guess you could say. So I'll start with the ones on the animal health side, the company side first. So all your animal health manufacturing companies, your Merck, Elanco, Zoetis, BI, your smaller ones like Fibro and um, Colorado Serum, kind of the ones that people have heard of, people that haven't heard of, they have veterinarians working for them in a regulatory capacity. And they're the ones that engage with veterinarians and PhDs on the other side, which is working for the regulatory entities themselves. The USDA, the FDA, even the EPA employs veterinarians uh, in a bunch of different capacities. They may be reviewing the application for a specific product. So if I'm a vaccine manufacturer and I got this great product that I think is going to, you know, uh, cure swine flu, I would um, submit that to the USDA and there's a branch of the USDA called the CVB, the Center for Veterinary Biologics. Um, it's out in Ames, Iowa. I used to go out there um, quite a bit for my job, my old job. Um, and I would engage with veterinarians um, with that realm because I kind of sat in the middle. Like I said, there's opportunities between the companies and the regulator, and that's where groups like AHI that I used to work at um, fall in, uh, come into play. Because AHI is a trade association, um, they, we kind of act as that go-between for the companies who are producing the products and then the regulators who have to evaluate it and give their sign-off. Found over time, it's easier to have kind of one point of contact for all of industry, especially for things that deal with um, multiple companies' products. You know, you wouldn't take on a role or a, a specific task for one company's specific product, but in terms of things that would affect the entire industry, um, that's where what I did for the past five years. So like I said, there's opportunities for veterinarians at the companies, 
the regulatory agencies themselves, and then helping those groups honestly talk together and work together. So it's um, it's a different different set of skills you use than uh, when you're in practice, um, but a lot of the same scientific principles, a lot of the same training. Um, it was it was not a career path I thought I you know I saw myself on, but I, I really enjoyed it, and it's kind of opened my eyes to other opportunities that are available to us in the veterinary profession. Awesome. And what are some of the differences between working in the regulatory sector versus in practice? Aside from the obvious differences, like not interfacing with clients and all that comes with that, but what are some challenges that may be unique to working on the regulatory side of veterinary medicine? Yeah. So um, I guess if you're if a veterinarian is working for a company, so say you work for Merck and you're trying to get a product through, like a vaccine through, and I should say I keep coming back to vaccines because that was my role. I had a counterpart who handled the pharmaceutical side. I did the vaccines and um, the EPA stuff. Um, so if I'm you know, a veterinarian at Merck and I have this great new product and I'm trying to get it approved and push through and uh, to market, I'm going to submit all kinds of evidence and studies and labels because the, the product itself, again, has to be pure, potent, safe, and effective. And so I have to use that side of my brain where I learned some statistics um, to kind of know, oh, kind of uh, model what the effect is going to be. I need to use everything I learned in biochemistry and immunology and microbiology and bacteriology because that all comes into play when we're trying to when you're trying to explain to the regulator, this is how our product works, this is why it's safe, this is how it's administered, um, this is how it's, long it's going to last, and so it's kind of a, I say, you're not going to be doing any surgery, you're not going to be um, palpating a lot of stuff if you go into the regulatory world, which some people miss, uh, but it's a, it's a different part of your brain, and you have to have a different approach to really answering questions from your regulator, from your reviewer, to say, um, this is why we think this is a, a product that should be approved and taken to market. On the other side, the reviewers and the inspectors at, um, again, take USDA, for example, um, they have to learn all kinds of stuff about good manufacturing practices, which is um, a set of guidelines for how a, um, a facility should be set up and, and designed and maintained so that you can ensure sterility of the product, you can ensure it's not adulterated, you can ensure that it's um, a consistent product every time. Um, you'll need to learn, honestly, probably a little bit every day about how to, how to scale, what new products are coming to market, what their mechanism of action is. So again, back to biochemistry. Um, and there's uh, quite a bit of patience you have to learn too because it's a lot of back and forth. You know, we're kind of pushing, pushing um, on the limit of what's currently known. You know, that's kind of the goal is to get new innovative products to market so that we can finally defeat diseases like high path AI and swine flu and you know all these and uh, African swine fever and all these diseases that have a huge animal health component but I think we're seeing have a real world human health component as well. And the only way to do that is to keep innovating, uh, keep working hand-in-hand, hand, both the companies and the regulators, to, to make sure we get good products out there and, and fight these bad bugs off. When I first went into the job, I had the sense that, oh, the um, since I worked for a trade association, I was you know, fully on the, the company's side. They were the ones that 
paid my salary and I was their advocate. And I went into it thinking, man, I'm going to butt heads with these reviewers and we're just going to be locked, you know, horns locked all the time. But it really wasn't that way. It was, it was a lot of um, coordination in terms of getting the right people um, in the room together, everybody at the same level of understanding about these are the issues we're trying to deal with. Here's some potential solutions. Work out why this one would work and this one wouldn't. Um, because the last thing you want to do, the last thing anybody wants to do, either company or regulator, is have a product go on the market that is either ineffective or unsafe. Because then you harm not only the animals and people who you know, directly took or were affected by that drug, but then the whole idea of, well, maybe vaccines don't work or maybe animal drugs don't work and I don't need to you know, give my dog heartworm medicine. Um, and that's something that regulators and companies are simpatico on. We don't. We want to maintain the public's level of trust and um, and yeah, level of trust in those products. Absolutely. So, how would a practicing DVM move to the regulatory side? What does that look like? Yeah, um, I guess I can only speak for myself. Um, but the the veterinarians that I well, I said the veterinarians I worked with who either went to the company side or the regulatory side, um, they didn't all have, they, they all had DVMs, obviously, that's what made them veterinarians. Um, there are some non-veterinarians that are also in those same roles. So the roles that I'm speaking of on the company side are things like, you know, director of regulatory activities or um, regulatory strategy. They'll have different titles, but it's essentially that liaison position between the company and whoever the particular regulator you're working with is. And a DVM is the, you know, a great base level knowledge base um, and, and title for those positions because, as veterinarians know, we're trained on just about everything. Um, some people had PhDs, some had backgrounds in microbiology, um, but not always, and those weren't essential. You know, I didn't have, I don't have a PhD, I don't have a background in microbiology, and I was able to grasp the concepts, the scientific concepts, fairly easily just from a DVM training. On the regulator side, depending on how high you're hoping to rise within the ranks, sometimes that does take some advanced training, um, you know, to get, like at any entity, um, people with a PhD or with a background in a particular field like immunology or something may move up faster, but there were plenty of just good old regular DVMs who um, took it upon themselves to get up to speed on the topics and the the concepts they needed to, and uh, and had had great careers. Um, as far as where to find those kind of positions, um, it's really company websites. Um, they'll list out what their regulatory needs are, um, with groups like the regulatory um, entities, so FDA, USDA, EPA. That requires going through um, US, USA Jobs, which is the USAJobs.com is the federal hiring website. I will uh, not mince words about it. It could be improved. It is uh, quite clunky, um, but once you do get through the process, um, and they kind of you're able to interview for the positions, um, it works like any other job. Um, some of them require relocation. Some of them, some of them offer, or excuse me, remote um, opp working opportunities. Um, it just highly depends. Okay. Did you travel a lot? I traveled, so when I was doing um, regulatory work, I would travel uh, probably about five to ten times a year. And for 
that phase of my life that I was in, that was perfect. Um, I was you know, single at the time, it was just me and the pets, and so it was no big deal to jump on a plane and go to beautiful Ames, Iowa for four days yeah. <laughs> or wherever else I uh, needed to go. Um, so there are, is some travel that's, um, that's required. I will say there are international opportunities. Um, so less, I know less about those just because I was almost completely domestically focused, but all the major animal health companies and USDA uh, for sure, and probably FDA as well, um, have international offices uh, where they act as, again, a liaison between foreign animal health officials and kind of act as the, the voice of the USDA in foreign countries. So there is uh, there's, there's a, a lot of depth and breadth in terms of where your career can take you if you do decide to go that regulatory route. That's wonderful. Well, what are some of the needs on the regulatory side that DVMs could possibly plug into? At least on the USDA side, obviously a big thing going on right now is high path AI, high path avian influenza. Um, that you know, people kind of see the uh, the downstream effects of that every time they go to the grocery store and they see that eggs have gone up and chicken meat has gone up. It's because there's this highly contagious disease that um, is carried in wild waterfowl that is then transmitted uh, when those ducks and geese kind of land nearby or in these um, production areas. Uh, then the poultry that are around, the domestic poultry, will catch the disease. And since we don't have effective treatments for that disease in particular, um, the only option at this point is to completely eliminate that affected flock and depopulate. Um, so obviously if you're taking millions of chickens and millions of eggs out of the, um, the supply chain, then the cost, and the, uh, the cost of the ones that remain go up. Yeah. So that's something that there's a lot of attention being paid to on the animal health side. That's, you know, I make the argument that's a perfect example of how uh, the concept of one health comes into reality because it has animal health, it has human health in terms of maybe, you know, nutritional needs maybe not being as readily available. There's the environmental portion of it. Um, you know, wildlife are the, the vector or the reservoir for this disease. And so it's something that kind of fits into that One Health um, framework that we always talk about, but we're still trying to figure out how to make a, uh, a concerted approach to, to treat those issues. We need new tools to, to treat this. Right now there's not really a, um, a good vaccine candidate for um, high path AI. Um, there's two problems, you know, you have to have an effective product and you also have to have an effective way of getting it to the birds that you know, that will catch or that carry the disease. And so those two problems have to be worked out. And until they are, the only tool you're left with is depopulation. Um, and so it's, we're trying to get ahead of it by eliminating these, um, these flocks that we know it's in, um, but then that just still leaves it in that wildlife reservoir. And so we have to have an answer for that. And so I've, I hope there's new products and uh, new strategies just over the horizon that'll help in that regard. I understand. Well, why is it important for veterinarians to be involved with the regulatory agencies? Oh, that's a great question. You know, especially in animal health, I always say this, veterinarians are the authority on animal health issues. I won't claim to know as much about immunology as someone who got their PhD in immunology, but that is a very focused area of expertise of that particular individual, whereas 
veterinarians, we get the entire swath of what it takes to keep an individual animal and animal populations healthy. And veterinarians should be in the, you know, in the driver's seat for all this. Um, if we step back and say, you know, that's regulatory, you know, working for a big, you know, company or something like that, I don't want to do that. I'm just, you know, going to be over here in my own little bubble. Well, then the problem's going to come home to you because then new products don't get approved, new products don't get to market, we don't get um, new strategies and dealing with very, very consequential diseases like high path AI and African swine fever. Um, and I think veterinarians, honestly, it's our, our calling and our duty to be involved in that. I understand not everybody um, may be enticed by that message or drawn to a role, but we do need more veterinarians in these positions. Um, it's at least the branch of, um, you know, some of the branches of government that I worked alongside. It was a, a fairly seasoned group of people working there, which is great, except they all tend to retire at the same time. And then you have a new crop of people moving in. It takes a while for them to get up to speed. You lose a lot of that institutional knowledge that helped to smooth the process out and get new products to market. And so um, keeping a, um, you know, fresh blood in the, the process, getting new people in um, is, is very important. And so I would just say for um, veterinarians who maybe they were like I was, or are like I was, and just not getting those intrinsic rewards for practicing um, and saying, you know, there's, what if there's another aspect of vet med out there that may be more fulfilling to me? Highly recommend, um, you know, there's, uh, highly recommend they look into the regulatory sphere, um, either on the, the corporation side or the the regulator side or somewhere in the middle like I was. Um, it's a, it was a very rewarding uh, job. I really liked it. Um, ended up um, leaving my position uh, this past year because I got married during the pandemic. We had a ba uh, baby during the pandemic and so it was, thank you, it was time to move back home a little closer to family. Um, but I still try to keep a foot in that world. Always um, tout it as a very important aspect of the animal health world and as a whole. Wow, that's fantastic. And you made such a big change during the pandemic, which was such a stressful time. What would you say to veterinarians who are contemplating a big career change? Maybe not necessarily over to the regulatory side, but in general, do you have any advice from your own experience? Looking back, I think it's very important to have a, a realistic timeline as far as how long it'll take to find that that non-clinical position, that good fit, because you know, after I decided to leave the clinic, I still did relief work for about a year before I finally found the job up at AHI, and that offered me the flexibility to go, you know, do interviews and attend some conferences where I made some connections that led to to that. Um, and so, it's not something where you're just going to, you know, quit your clinical job on Friday and find the perfect job on the next Monday. Um, it does take some time and some work, um, and getting familiar with the entities that will post positions that are uh, that are available, and so just be real, realistic with that. You know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, one year of my life of um, a lot of uncertainty and um, quite a bit of discomfort um, was nothing. You know, it's a drop in the bucket, and it led to an opportunity that set me off on a, a different path, a much better path, and so it's worth it. And I think 
if vets and vet students have that in mind, saying, I'm, I'm in this for the long run, this is an investment in my future, um, and a, a potentially a career path that I might enjoy much better than whatever I'm doing now, um, it's worth it to just keep that in mind and, and look forward to that, that day when you're going to nail that perfect position and, and find the, the job that, that suits you. Well, Dr. McCauley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. It was great. A few quick announcements. The CVA Level 1 workshop will take place at TVMA offices on April 23rd. Head to tvma.org to find the CVA page under the Education Opportunities tab or contact Larissa Respondek, Director of Credentialing at lrespondek at tvma.org. That's L-R-E-S-P-O-N-D-E-K at tvma.org. TVMA will be holding its biannual Veterinary Capital Visitation Day on April 12th and 13th. It's essential we have a strong showing from TVMA members to meet with as many legislators as possible and to brief them on the profession's key issues for the next session. You can find more information about joining us for the Advocacy Lab and Veterinary Capital Visitation Day on tvma.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a colleague and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. A like, a share, a retweet, these are all great ways that you can support TVMA that won't cost you a dime. I'm your host, Audrea Wood. Thanks for listening.